This is a workshop on spiritual warfare. For many Christians, the idea of spiritual warfare seems foreign. Yet from the Old through the New Testaments, the theme and reality of warfare is present. In the Old, the conflict between God's people and their enemies had both a natural and a spiritual component, as it was the gods of the other nations and the spiritual powers behind them that constantly tried to derail the Jews from obedience into idolatry and bring them into bondage that the promises and purposes of God would not be able to come to pass. In the new, the spiritual identity of the enemy is more transparent and we see Jesus first dealing with the works of the devil and then his disciples dealing with them. The instructions that were taught from not letting sin rule over us to putting on the whole armor of God testify to the reality of this continued warfare. Just what is spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare is the advancement of the kingdom of God throughout the earth so that God is glorified and people are set free. Warfare is not an end in itself. It's to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. Fortunately, warfare is not eternal, but it is a part of this age because of the fall. Successful warfare will see people being saved or set free from various bondages. I believe everything we do in life to glorify God and love people so that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. Every time we pray for others according to God's will, when we introduce them to the Savior and they're gloriously saved, it falls very broadly under the rubric of spiritual warfare. In 1 John 3, 8, we are told the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus taught his disciples how to join him in this purpose. In Matthew 10, verses 1, 7, and 8, Jesus called the twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This is spiritual warfare. Anytime we set captives free and we destroy the works of the devil to God's glory. Now why is this warfare necessary? Well, there is a devil. And Satan's primary objective is to prevent God from being glorified by keeping lost people from being saved. His secondary objective is to make human beings and human society as miserable as possible in this life. This is because God created and loves people, and we're made in his image. Because Satan can't harm God directly, he seeks to harm the ones that God loves. But perhaps Satan's ultimate goal is to try to prevent or at least delay the hour of his own judgment. Now, there are four levels of spiritual warfare. The first and the most basic is the personal ground level warfare. This is the arena of healing and victory over individual pain, trauma, lies, bondages, personally and for other people. Um, the issues are the same. I, personal warfare are things that apply to us and our freedom in Christ. And ground level I use to to very broadly talk about ministry to others to set them free. It involves getting free from habitual sin. And if we're not free from this, we're not able to take others um, into freedom. We can only take them as far as we've gone. Too many Christians tend to be passive and fighting for their freedom. And thus, their own journey to victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil takes a lot longer than is necessary. And Unfortunately, some people never make it. The next level, which is much more difficult, is the occult level. Uh, very, very few people are called to this or the next level, but everybody's called to the most basic level of warfare. In the occult level, this area involves dealing with curses and demonic powers that are released through witchcraft and curses and human partnerships with demons. This can include illnesses which have a spiritual rather than a natural cause. One young man I remember praying for had terrible neck pains and headaches for weeks. 
And when he came to me, it was for healing prayer. And the Lord told me as he was talking to me that um, this young man was a pain in the neck to his own pastor. Now, I asked him a few questions and discovered that this was indeed true. I instructed him from the scriptures and I led him into a time of repentance. And after he was done praying, he said all the pain, which was an 8 out of 10 that, that day, was totally gone. This is an instance where all of that pain was not um, due to a medical reason, but it was due to his stubbornness and his rebellion that the enemy was able to come and, and harm him. Then there is the strategic level. And here we deal with the powers that rule over geographical areas, ideologies, and over the seven mountains of society. These are the generals and the bosses, and they can be pretty tough. The Bible confirms their existence. 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. There are a few principles for success in warfare. First, make sure that you are in proper relationship with God. Don't just go to church. Don't just know things about God, but make sure that you really are introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The second is to confess all known sin. Ask the Lord to search your heart and reveal things that perhaps you've overlooked or maybe you're unaware of. Seek healing for all persistent sin patterns. If there are sins that you can't get rid of, don't make excuses for them. Don't accommodate and say, well, God's going to forgive me for this. Look for those and ask the Lord for people to minister to you in prayer and get you free. That is entirely possible and that is the privilege of spiritual warfare. Next, allow trusted others to read your spiritual thermometer. Ask God for people who love God and who love you and who will pray and speak the truth and love to you that you can be accountable to them for the decisions that you're making before the Lord. You know, the higher God calls you in leadership, the higher will be your standards of holiness. Determine right now, wherever you are, that you're going to walk in humility, in obedience, in purity, and in holiness. Then put on the whole armor of God. You know, soldiers that are unequipped for battle, they don't have their armor or their weapons, they don't tend to fare very well in a battle. Make sure that your armor is on every day. And then have a renewed mind to know the Lord and his ways. In Romans 12.2, we're told, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Psalm 25.4, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. We've got to grow in understanding who God is and what he desires. Now, what are the things of primary importance to God? The things that are on his heart. The disciples came and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. When they looked at Jesus, they realized that even though they had grown up in that culture of prayer, they didn't actually know how to pray effectively as Jesus did and that their prayers were not answered as quickly or as dramatically as Jesus's. And so in Matthew 6, verses 8 to 10, Jesus instructs them and says, Therefore do not be like them, that is, the Gentiles, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only after praying for these things would come the requests that pertain to our needs, which the Father already knew about. 
This was a transformative mindset and worldview shift for the disciples. This was how Jesus prayed. And basically, Jesus is telling them, it's not about you, it's all about him. Spiritual warfare is not about us. It's not about our comfort and our ease. To put ourselves out in that place of warfare, to see others set free, is to align ourselves with the glory of God, then the desire for to manifest in our lives and the lives of others around us. If we put God first, God will surely remember us. If you take care of the things on God's heart, he will take care of the things on your heart. This is a truth that we come to in the renewing of our minds. This is the way Jesus thought. When we think like Jesus, we begin to be conformed to our Savior. And that's the time when God can use us to accomplish His works upon the earth. Now, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to take a look at the importance of worldview. It's, it's important. We've got to truly understand um, and conquer in spiritual warfare, we're going to need to address our worldview. We all have one. For most of you, leaving the United States and going to another land and living there for a while among the people will bring a clash of worldview. Now, the dictionary defines worldview as A, the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world, and B, a collection of beliefs about life in the universe um, held by an individual or a group. Now our worldview in the West contains all kinds of presuppositions of reality that we bring to our understanding of what is that informs the way we think and even how we think. None of us comes to the scriptures as a blank slate. Um, we come and we bring our worldview and we interpret what the scriptures is saying according to our understanding and our differences in environments and education experiences culture it affects our beliefs about reality and how we understand what we're processing this diagram will show us that that um, our experience get filtered through various grids we see on the on the left all the things that happened are filtered through our beliefs and then further filtered through our experiences, and then our understanding of what those experiences means, and then through our fears or our desires, until we come to that place that we call reality, and it's personal for us. A worldview is both unconscious and pervasive. It's unconscious because it's so pervasive in us, and consequently, most of the time, we're not aware of why we interpret our experiences as we do. Our worldview resists change because it is unconscious and unexamined. And when we're with people with the same worldview, then it just continually reinforces to one another that this is what reality is. Until we are around people with a different worldview, who come from perhaps a different culture, do we find that there are other ways of seeing things and perhaps their way may be more right than the way we see things. Most Christians have lost the connection that events can be caused by the spiritual world impinging upon our here and now. What in another age might have been perceived as spiritual problems, maybe God wanting to get our attention, are reduced to things like, oh, it's sickness or mental illness, medical problems, or it's mother nature. Because we don't see the spiritual causes, we don't actually believe in spiritual solutions. There's a missionary family that began their ministry in Mexico. Some weeks after they settled into their village, their son became sick. Numerous visits to the doctor, including specialists in Mexico City, did not help. The boy kept getting weaker, and the doctors finally said, there's really nothing we can do. In desperation, the father locked himself in a room, and he wouldn't come out. He continued to fast and pray, and he barely slept for days, seeking God for his son's life. And after some time, the Lord spoke, and he said, Your son has been cursed by a witch doctor. Now, the missionary never believed in such a thing. Um, he didn't believe in witch doctors or curses, but he was desperate. His son was dying. 
And so as he sought God and he heard God, he began to ask God what he was to do. And as the Lord showed him, he prayed and he did. And when he finally felt released in prayer, he left the room and he discovered that his son at that time, that very moment, was healed. Now what he discovered later that was that there was a neighbor that died at around the very same time. And other neighbors told him later that that man was the local witch doctor. Similar kinds of stories abound among veterans on the mission field. In John 12, verses 28 and 29, we, we see a very good example of worldview. Jesus in the, in the midst of a crowd when he begins to pray. Now imagine this is a contemporary crowd with both evangelicals and charismatics. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, both groups heard the Father speak to Jesus, but they processed it through their worldview, and they came up with a very different truth. An evangelical who might not believe the supernatural signs are for today could easily say, well, I heard something, but it sounded like thunder. A charismatic might say, yeah, it sounded like a voice. I think an angel spoke to him. And both of them, in their understanding, would be absolutely sure that that was the reality. But what was interesting is that neither group actually accurately identify what truly happened. Um, this speaks to the limitations of our experience and our understanding and knowledge. The way that we can really understand more of God is to have a biblical worldview. And many sincere believers don't have a biblical worldview, although they assume that they do. And sometimes, I, if you have time, take one of these courses or these quizzes on biblical worldview that you find on the internet. That may be very, very eye-opening for many of us. But we will often mistake reality if we don't have that biblical worldview and, and be off from the things that God is actually doing. Now, here's a comparison of our Western worldview against how much of the non-Western world perceives reality. In the Western view, you have God, the angels, faith, miracles, the devil, and demons, and they belong to a transcendent realm. They're invisible, they're high, and they're really above the earth, while animals, the senses, the natural world, science, and technology, this is what's imminent in the world. Um, these things are normal, and these are the things that we can interact with. The transcendent realm, where God and the angels live, that's not really something that anybody accesses. These separate categories form what we call the sacred-secular divide. And these realms are compartmentalized. They don't interact with each other. They don't, um, in any way, shape, or form, touch one another. And this view has its beginnings not in the Bible, but from the Enlightenment, from the philosophies of men. And there is an excluded middle in Western thought. Meanwhile, in the traditional non-Christian view, we find all of these things being included. But they don't compartmentalize things. They're viewed as a continuum. And everything interacts with each other so that God is not just limited and angels are not just limited to something that's unknowable but can actually appear and interact with people today. There are parts in, that the West excludes that are understood as reality in that continuum. The ghosts and witches and sorcerers, witchcraft, magic, the evil eye, blessings, curses, amulets, etc. These are all kinds of things that um, are discounted as superstition in the West, but really are realities to much of the world, and they have power to harm people. Many missionaries have encountered the realities of these things in their ministries. This worldview is both holistic and intuitive. 
And the Western mission has been preoccupied by theology at one level and technology at the other. And it seems that that's what we specialize in, either the theology or the technology, of which medicine falls into the, the technology side. And what we find is that there's a neglect of the everyday application of religion. Uh, it's completely ne negated. And when it comes down to giving guidance or instruction, we don't really have solutions to the problems many people face in everyday life. It is in this area where a wise and effectual application of spiritual warfare can bring individual and corporate breakthroughs. And so it is in the West, we focus on truth, while in the rest of the world, what they want to know is power. Does your God have the power? And that's going to be the question that you're going to be asked not to answer, but to demonstrate. Does your God truly have power to protect me from sickness? Does your God have the power to deliver me from death and curses? Don't just give me a word, prove it. Biblical Christianity has no problems at all dealing with that aspect of these questions, whereas the Western worldview, we do. Ramsey Macmillan is one of the most preeminent scholars in Roman history. His scholarly interests were in the social history of Rome and the replacement of paganism by Christianity. In his book, Christianizing the Roman Empire, AD 100 to 400, he writes, it was not the church's liturgy or morals or monotheism or internal organization that seemed to non-Christians much different than other people. The one point of difference that seemed most salient was the antagonism inherent in Christianity. Antagonism of God against all supernatural powers. It was the manhandling of demons, humiliating them, making them howl, beg for mercy, tell their secrets, and mocking them making them depart in a hurry that served a purpose quite essential to a Christian definition of a supreme God monotheism. It made physically and dramatically visible the superiority of the Christian's patron power, that is, Jesus Christ, over all others. Non-Christians were won to, over to the church through miraculous demonstrations, head-on challenges of non-Christians to a test of power, head-on confrontations with supernatural beings, inferior to God, and a contemptuous dismissal of merely rational paths toward the true knowledge of the divine. In other words, it was the supernatural power of God through believers for the first three centuries, long after the disciples wrote the scriptures and they were accepted um, broadly, that enabled the early church to endure and thrive through ten vicious waves of persecution before Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome. What they lived and what they did daily was spiritual warfare. Now, no discussion of spiritual warfare would be complete without an understanding of some of the weapons of our warfare. This is just a basic list. It's not comprehensive. But it is important, as we look at these weapons, to listen to the Holy Spirit about how to apply these things instead of just looking for a formula. The first thing we have is the name of the Lord. And there's a reason that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. The name is synonymous with God. And there is great power in that name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. In John 16, verses 23 to 24, we are told, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth. And that power of the name of Jesus against all the works of the devil are available to us. Mark sixteen seventeen, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. In Luke 10, verses 17 to 19, there's the report card of the disciples that went out two by two. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, 
Even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Then we have the blood of the Lamb. In 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, purifies us from all sin. Revelation 12, verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. That blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. It has power. Then there is the power of agreement. In Matthew 18, 19 to 20, we're told, again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And when we come and we echo what we are hearing from God in the heavenlies, and we come in agreement on earth with that, there is great power that is released through that power of agreement. In Leviticus 6, 8, we find an interesting passage that tells us about the power of agreement. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. From five to a hundred is only twenty times more agreement or people, and yet they were able to chase a hundred times more enemies. This is a glimpse of the power uh, a synergistic power of agreement. Then we have the Word of God. Now Jesus used the Word of God very effectively against the enemy in the um, wilderness. It is written, and Jesus would speak the Word of God, and that just shut the devil up. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Then there is prayer and fasting. Mark 9, verses 28 to 29, it happens right after Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and he delivers um, a, a demonized boy that his disciples couldn't. And when they had, he had come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now, the disciples had already found out that when they used the name of Jesus, disciple, um, demons submitted to them. And Jesus said to them, this kind of pr can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Fasting is a force multiplier. You can pray, but when you fast, it multiplies the power that is inherent in prayer. Jesus didn't say that we might fast when he was gone, but that we would fast when he was gone. So prayer and fasting is very important to see power released. Then there is praise and worship. In Psalm 149, verses 5 to 9, it says, Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy in their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Now what was true of natural enemies in the Old Testament is also true of our unseen supernatural enemies in the New Testament. In Acts 16 verses 25 to 26, about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Praise and worship have the power to loose the chains the enemy wants to bind us with. And then we have the word uh, of, of our testimony. Revelation 12, 11, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And their testimony wasn't just telling about how 30 years ago they believed in Jesus. It is a current, up-to-date testimony about who God is to them right now. Revelation 12:11 tells us they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they were faithful. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I want to give you some final encouragements about spiritual warfare. The first is that you can't take ground from the enemy if he has ground in you. The first deliverance that I ever did, I was in college, and a student wanted prayer because he was dealing with lust. He even said, I don't know if I'm demonized or what. And uh, I brought a friend with me, and we were praying, and I never expected a demon to manifest. Believe me, when that happens, your whole theology, your whole worldview is upset. And it has to change. And as we were praying for this man, um, we were commanding the demon to leave. And suddenly he said, it's gone. I, I, f I felt it. It's gone. It's gone. And I was so stoked. I was so excited because it was my first time. And I realized that, boy, the Bible's true. This stuff works. And it was years later that the friend that had come to pray with me confessed that, when we commanded the demon to leave, that the demon actually jumped from the man we were praying for onto him because he also shared the same problem with lust. And that he said that the problem for him got worse afterwards. Now, he had graduated a couple of weeks after that prayer time, and we didn't actually keep in touch as much after um, he parted. And he told me, when we met years later, that he had struggled for many years um, against this, this lust. The enemy will take any advantage he can. Don't leave any open doors. Aim to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Thermostats regulate the ambient temperature, and thermometers merely reflect it. Be active in setting your spiritual temperature. And don't be passive, just accommodating yourself to whatever's going on around you. Know that the Holy Spirit loves a good fight. A good fight is one that you win. And the Holy Spirit's not afraid to contend for the Father's good purposes in us. Be strong and of good courage. The Holy Spirit is in us to will and to do what God's good purposes and pleasure are for us. And there are times when God will permit in His wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. But that is that he surfaces things so that he can set us free. So I've learned, as James says, to count everything all joy when I face various trials and temptation because I've learned by experience that the Holy Spirit is going to fight in and for me so that I can come into a place of greater freedom. And when I come into a place of greater freedom, then I have more that I'm able to minister to others and that that greater freedom and greater authority is going to take things away from the enemy. Now, you're going to either be a target or you're going to be a victim. Satan's a bully. He loves to torment the weak. And there's just no peace treaty between you and him. He's going to harass you even if you try to keep a low profile. And even if you're not a Christian, he's going to come after you anyway. So, if, we really, if he's really going to come after us, let him come after you because you're a threat to his kingdom. Since you're going to be bullied anyway, determine that you're going to be bullied because you're a threat to him rather than a victim that's helpless and going to be pushed around. If you're a threat to the enemy, you're going to be doing the will of God. God is going to be pleased with you. And in that bullying, God is going to bring about the victory so that you will see that you're more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you. Finally, my fervent hope is that this presentation will open your eyes and your understanding and draw you into the study and practice of spiritual warfare so that you may conquer and destroy the works of the devil wherever you go and that you may see many, many people coming to Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this.